This episode of the e-commerce playbook podcast is brought to you by Soral. Build your influencer marketing program on autopilot with a simple workflow for everything from gifting to paid campaigns. Try it out for free at getsoral.com slash champions slash CTC or with the link in the show notes. Hey everyone, welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gaffin, director of digital projects strategy here at Common Thread Collective. Back after a two week hiatus in the wilderness, well, Taylor has been out reporter on the beat interviewing various guests. I'm joined yet again, of course, by uh, our CEO, Taylor Holiday. Taylor, how are you doing? Doing well. Richard, were you Aaron Rodgers in the dark retreat or where where did you take this hiatus to? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Me and Aaron were uh, doing ayahuasca and talking about UFOs or whatever. I can't honestly probably having conversations very similar to the one we're about to have about the big picture, what's right and wrong, good and bad. That's right. So I'm hoping you've brought back some insight from that journey to help us solve right. this yeah, yeah. dilemma. conversation we're having today is on a provocative new video we have coming out either depending on when this comes out either last week or this week and the title of that particular video is the UGC bullshit meter and I think based on the title you can all kind of guess what that's about already which is maybe another part of this conversation that's kind of interesting that we all sort of get that there's a lot of bullshit going on in UGC <laughs> yeah exactly but I wanted to start out by saying or, or rather defining bullshit there's a philosopher called Harry Frankfurt, who in the 80s wrote an essay called On Bullshit, where he decided to take an academic approach to defining this word. Oh, I like and it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Essentially, what he got to is this idea that like bullshit isn't lying per se. It's not having much concern or not having a concern for the truth in the first place. You're communicating in such a way that whether or not the content of your communication is true, the purpose of it is a manipulation beyond whether or not you're communicating something that's directly true to the person. And so obviously when it gets to UGC, we have a real tangle of bullshit that we have to get through. So um, why don't I kick it off and just say, Taylor, what what prompted you to create this video? Why, why has it been on your mind recently? Man, Harry, I, I am, I'm a fan of that. That's gonna be a great setup for a Twitter thread someday, Richard. But <laughs> look, the reality is if you are in e-commerce and you're running Facebook ads, this is the topic du jour, and it has been for six months on the creative side, is that suddenly everybody on Twitter is a UGC creator. If go read all their bios, every human, everybody with an Instagram account is a UGC creator and brands all day want you to make them UGC. They want you to source them UGC. They want you to run UGC. They want you. And so there's this never ending topic about this acronym that has suddenly come to mean a lot of things. And then the domino got tipped over for me two weeks ago when I was having a conversation. It started with our AI conversation where I had, mm. I got introduced to some people who were creating AI UGC that basically allowed you to make a fake person and make them say anything you want and make it look like it's a real person saying a real thing. And I was just like, oh my goodness, we've just completely slipped off the edge here. And so I think that just led me to this sort of, uh, okay, we, we need to discuss this. We all need to acknowledge what's happening here and decide if this is something we really, really want for our industry or where is the line that we as a brand or as an agency, as a provider, look, we've been sucked into this. Like, I'm not going to say we haven't contributed to the bullshit at some point, but the question is like, where is our ethical line? And then how do I think about that? So like many things, it's my processing out loud. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. So to that ethics question, maybe, I think like a lot of or we were discussing before we hit record here, 
a conversation that we had, or rather a class that we put together. We've mentioned it before. It's an yep. ad philosophy course. And the idea is it, partially it's it just sort of a, a way to frame all of the tactics that you'll get from our products and from our service and that kind of thing, starting from these big principles about what makes a good business and working down. But the question that we started off with in the very first class of that course was what's the difference between capital G good and lowercase good advertising? And this is sort of a, a kind of a liberal artsy way to say like, what's the difference between advertising being good as in good or evil, good and bad, and advertising being effective or ineffective? And almost always, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, we're having a conversation about the latter, which is to say what makes advertising effective and what makes it not effective. And in this case, I think the primary conversation we're going to be having today is around the first question is like what types of ad or what makes an ad good or bad in the sense of right or wrong. And so I think like, obviously you mentioned the impetus for creating this video in the first place, but Taylor, why is, why is this an ethical question that you think is worth tackling in a public way right now? Yeah. So you're, you're tapping into sort of my uh, deconstructionist worldview that I'm undoing here, but I actually don't know that I would frame it quite this way. I actually yeah. believe that there is an underlying connection between these things, between Eth ethically good and effective and mainly because it represent one represents reality the idea that there are people out in the world saying good things about you which will have a compounding word of mouth value for you and one represents a false reality that there's not necessarily someone saying anything about you and it misleads you into thinking your business is being more impactful than it is in some ways and so it robs you of the actual obligation to create a thing worth talking about right. and so in that way i think there can be actually a connection between effectiveness and ethics but let's assume that there isn't because i think that's where if there really was a trade-off where we could say the flat out lie is effective should you run that ad yes or no and that's a question that I think that everybody has to answer for themselves. And they have to decide hmm. both as a creator, you have to decide if you're going to make that content and you're going to tell that representative narrative of your use of a product. And as a brand, if you want to position to customers that there are other people having this testimonial style experience about your brand that you know is totally fake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh yeah, it's, it's interesting, that question about, and maybe we can get into it a little bit later, but the, the difference between effectiveness and ethics, or rather the relationship between the two, is that often, let's say, maybe for the sake of argument, that in the short term, often those things can be completely disconnected from one another. Yep. And you can do something that feels ethically maybe uh, not above board that is effective in the short term. But in the long run, what, one way to think about it is that if you have to lie about your product to get people to buy it, then maybe your product's not so great in the first place. And given all of our conversations about thinking about the long game and building an anti-fragile company, if your product isn't good enough to tell the truth about, then maybe you have a problem. Yeah, it's, the, it's probably the latency of the consequences, right? In the mm -hmm. same way that maybe eating sugar doesn't feel bad for you and may have very limited short-term effects, but if you do it enough over time, you're going to cause some real problems. And I think that's, that's sort of how I see this, which is that any individual ad unit could be highly effective. There's no doubt about that. But if the promise that the person made in the video, and let's just say it's that they're having some incredible experience that's life-changing, doesn't actually match the experience of the product, that's the fundamental problem. You can't fake the actual experience someone will have once they buy the thing. And if someone eats the candy bar and is like, oh my God, this is so delicious, and it's bitter and terrible, 
there's going to be an incongruence that causes a problem at some point. Now, most of it's not that stark. Most of it probably lives more in the gray, which is, this is my favorite, you know, skincare ever. And you don't really know if it's doing anything and maybe it is, but this person said it was. And so now I just keep trying. And, but it's at the end of the day, the real key, the magic is developing experiences that genuinely elicit a reaction from people that authentically says, this is amazing. Because then they're not just going to say it the one time they record the video. They're going to say it to a bunch of people a bunch of times. Right. Okay. So well, actually, let's get into then the five types of UGC on the bullshit meter here. Yep. Starting with the worst, let's say, starting with the bullshittiest and going to the cleanest smelling per se. So yeah, let's start at the bottom work up. Yeah. So I, I, I sort of categorize five different versions because we've taken this term user generated content and we have allowed the user in that equation to become wildly variable, right? In terms of what that you actually represents. And at the bottom is the thing that I said topped me over as a domino, which is that the bullshittiest of all the bullshit is that there is a, there's not actually a user at all. There's a computer generated person saying a computer generated thing on a camera. So literally no, there is no user. No one actually used the product at all, right? In fact, the person is made up, the message is made up and you present it with no clarity, no declaration that it's an AI person, no declaration that it's fake, no declaration that it's a paid advertisement, you present this entirely artificial creation from beginning to end as if it's a real customer saying a real thing. This is right up there with, might as well get an AI bot to go leave 10,000 reviews on your website, right? There's, it's the same premise. You've completely artificially manufactured all of this such that none of it is real. And to your, you know, the, the hairy bullshit meter you described earlier, like they're not even interested in the truth. There's not even an attempt to represent the truth at all. That to me is a world that we might be headed towards and it is problematic at the very least. Right. Okay. So then let's move into the next tier, which while well, the first tier is maybe a new level that we haven't quite sunk to on mass yet. The second level is something that we've been guilty of us of probably a couple of times, yep. but, and that would be studio created, let's call it fake UGC. Yep. So the person is not a real user, but also the setting is not a natural one, let's say yeah. somebody's home or whatever. So talk about that. So let's call this AGC, actor generated content. There you go. This is you have paid a person to show up to say a thing that you wrote in a set or studio that's intended to represent a real location, but it's not real either. So the location's not real, the person's not real, and their opinion's not real. But yet you put it out in the world as if it were. And again, you make no declaration that it's a paid actor, you make no declaration that the testimonial is fake. Is entirely from beginning to end a manufactured process of a user-generated piece. Now, this has actually become quite prevalent in our industry because you can control the quality of the video, you can make them say anything that you want, and it becomes a very scripted process that can feel and be shot to look. This is another thing. The way you choose to shoot the, the videography is as if the user is shooting it themselves. So you're even misrepresenting the production mechanism in the process. That's the like fourth lowest level. These are all below the ethical line, Taylor's ethical line, but this is the, this is not quite as bad as the AI in my mind, but this is pretty close. Okay. All right. So let's move up one level then to the, the sort of last one, the one that's closest to the ethical line without actually being over it, or rather the one that's still, let's say unethical according to this, but closest to being like almost there, which is the most common also, which is paid influencer UGC. I mean, this is a whole 
massive industry of people who just do this. So speak to that a little bit. Yeah. So this is, this is like right below the ethical line. It teases it because I guarantee you someone's going to make the argument to me that what the influencer is saying is not directed. It's totally up to them. They get to decide for themselves. So you're not writing the script. Maybe you're giving them some talking points, but you're not, <laughs> you're not giving them a full script, but they are paid and they may or may not have ever actually used the product before. And it's not revealed to the customer in the delivery of the ad. So no one knows the terms of the relationship. It's not revealed that it's paid. And it's a real person on a real phone. So in this case, you have a user. They're doing their own production. In theory, their words are their own, right? So again, we're teetering up closer to that line. But ultimately, what they're saying may or not, may not be true. And actually, it probably isn't interested in being true. They're interested in providing a service to the brand hmm. who is compensating them. And that's actually their interest, not the truth. Right. Regardless of whether or not the, the content of what they say is actually true, the fact that it's being, they have to say it, or they're obligated to actually kind of undercuts that pretty significantly. That's right. We talk a lot about good and bad UGC in this episode, but if you want a streamlined way to do the good kind of UGC, which is product seeding, then look no further than Soral. If you're still using a spreadsheet to save creator profiles for influencer management, you will love this Chrome extension that comes with Soral. You can see engagement rates, like projections, and their fair price without even leaving the profile. And you can add them to your creator CRM with one click. And that's just step one. You can search for influencers, send personalized outreach emails, manage your relationships, and track performance all in one place. Sound too good to be true? See for yourself with Soral's free trial. Just go to getsoral.com slash champions slash CTC or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so then we sort of rise above the line into the light a little bit yep. here. And uh, so tier four is product seeding. So talk to me about how that's different than what we just talked about. Yeah, so product seeding is just the idea that you're going to send your product to a bunch of people. And you're going to allow them to do with it whatever they want. There's no financial exchange. There's no pretense that I'm sending you this product because you have already agreed to make something on be my behalf. And so in this way, there's an opt-in that seemingly reflects a genuine interest or expression in the thing that you've sent me such that I am providing unsolicited or unobligated feedback about the product. And a lot of times you'll see something like literally genuine people saying like, hey, I just got this. Let's open it up and check it out together. And so they're actually being more honest about what the interaction of receipt of the product is. And again, there's no financial obligation or incentive for them to say anything. Now, the reason it's kind of close to the line is because there is an inferred desire of why I'm sending you this. And as a person receiving this, I could infer that if I say good things, you might send me more stuff and I might get some money from you eventually if I do this well enough. And so there's still, it, it can get pretty gray in this area, but at least it gives the opportunity for people to do this at their own volition with no financial immediate obligation. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, there's still like the law of reciprocity still applies, which is where it'd be sort of a faux pas if I gave you a bunch of stuff and then I said, actually, I hate all of this. And you posted that about it. That's be right. kind of a baller move if you did do that. But at the same time, it's like there's still way more potential for somebody to receive and organically enjoy something and then say something that feels authentic about it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Okay. Then finally, the the 
the peak of the meter, let's say, so which is in fact sort of the least bullshitty. So maybe this is the most empty the meter yeah, is. This is the highest is standard. Customer generated content or CGC, a brand new acronym from us. So Taylor, talk about that. Yeah. So here the idea is that a customer, independent any re interaction with the brand, has chosen themselves to go out to their social audience and declare how amazing the product is on the basis that they paid for it and that they had an experience so amazing that they had to tell the world about it. Right. And then in light of you discovering that, you reach out to them and say, hey, thank you so much for sharing this story. Could we distribute it further in a paid medium? Well, now I think that this is an amplification of a truth more than it is a manufacturing of one, right? Now, again, could you argue that some influencers do that in hopes that the brand does reach out and pay them? Yes, there's always opportunity to sort of obfuscate the the, the goodness in this, I guess, in, in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. But to me, this is the purest form. I would even argue that just below this in CGC is for you. There used to be, and I don't know why Caro got right, got rid of this feature, but there, there's an app called Get Caro. They're based here in Orange County. And they used to allow you to upload your customer list and see who of all your followers were good content creators, see which product that they had ordered and reach out to them and say, hey, I noticed you bought you know, our, you know, our, our lotion, did you have a good experience? If so, would you be willing to share that experience on camera? Which again, to me still has this authentic prerequisite, which is that you bought the product of your own volition. And I'm reaching out for you for an opportunity to share a story about what you've experienced with that product. To me, this is the purest form of the customer testimonial, which is intended to represent what someone's experience of your product was. And I think that that's the, uh, that's the gold standard. Yeah. But what's so interesting about this is like it, the, the reason it's become so widespread and has a reputation for being such an effective form of advertising is what we're trying to do here is create a simulation of the most effective advertising technique there is, which is a recommendation from a friend. That's right. right? That's right. And so like any way, yeah, I, it's, it's too bad that Caro doesn't offer that anymore because it gets close to being what I think would be the, the best version of this is where you could monitor for people just telling their friends about this stuff completely unsolicited with no ex expectation of getting anything in return other than the sort of like good feeling you get from telling your friend about something really awesome that's that right. they then get to use themselves. That's right. And the more that you can tap into that and pull that into your advertising, I think the more effective it's going to be. That's right. And we can see this very directly when you think about the quantification of word of mouth. So word of mouth is a phrase that is really powerful, but we don't always know how to know if it's happening, right? Well, it's actually a very simple thing, which is if you can determine how many people are organically posting content about your brand? Like that is functionally modern word of mouth. That's how we communicate. That's the medium that we use now. And so we have some brands that like very naturally and organically, they get a ton of organic social posts from their customers. And I can tell you, it creates a flywheel. It's highly, highly effective. And they don't actually have to pay for it at all. And that to me is a signal that they've created a product that's so beautiful and awesome that it actually makes me look good when I share about it or mm -hmm. that the restaurant was so great or the vacation was so cool that I just had to tell people about it because I wanted to be that voice that brought something cool into my friend's reality. I want to be a hero for my audience. Right. That goes to that idea that the, the best advertising is a good product. And although there's some nuance to that, I guess that, that's still sort of, I think, fundamentally true. Yeah. That if you have a product that just like people will want to talk about, then that's free. You don't have to pay for that. You know. Yeah. So one thing, so one area though, that I think we need to address here is sort of the classic old school sort of sure. celebrity advertisement. 
And we used to always talk about Michael Jordan and McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and here's where I would put this. I actually put this above the line. Okay. Now you'd be like, Taylor, what? You know, Michael Jordan didn't eat McDonald's. Well, there is no commercial where you can find Michael Jordan pretending to shoot on an iPhone that he eats three Big Macs before every game. And that's what makes him jump higher. What you did mm -hmm. see was Michael Jordan and Larry Bird doing a famous game of horse and then on the sidelines associating themselves with McDonald's by grabbing a Big Mac. But the idea that Michael Jordan like got good at basketball because he ate chicken nuggets was not the message of the advertising, right? Like it wasn't about the efficacy. It was about aspiration. It was about association. And mm -hmm. there's no illusion that Michael Jordan is not paid. That is well-documented and public and anyone is aware of that reality. And so for me, that kind of endorsement, LeBron James for Nike, Matthew McConaughey for Chrysler, whatever it is, you know, Ryan Reynolds for Mint Mobile, like mm -hmm. these are about association of brands to one another in a way that the, just like I was listening to, there's a, if, if you've never listened to the acquisition podcast, it's, it's awesome. It's like three hour narratives of brands and they just did LVMH and they talked about that Beyonce and Jay-Z's decision to partner with Tiffany for a massive new ad campaign. They're the face of the, you know, the newest Tiffany campaign since LVMH acquired Tiffany says something about both brands, right? Despite the fact that it is a monetary exchange in both directions, someone like Jay-Z and Beyonce care so much about their brand that their willingness to endorse Tiffany elevates Tiffany in a way that isn't just about this idea that they're representing that their users are the product of their something. It's that the association of the brand identity, even in a paid exchange, says something about one another that's valuable in the market to both parties. And in that case, everybody's aware of something happening and it can be really powerful and effective in a way that I would put above Taylor's ethical line. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that's a good point that you bring up sort of like historical examples, because one thing that came to mind as we were having the conversation about the different levels of the meter is that all advertising is has a relationship with this idea for sure and has since the very, very beginning. Yep. And in our ad philosophy course, the second lesson is around ad history. And what you discover is that a lot, like a lot of advertising back in the day was built on very, very clever acts of bullshit, let's yes. say. Yeah. Uh, associating the idea of eating eggs and bacon with breakfast, which never really happened before. And now we all do it just because marketers sort of told us to. But one difference, I think, between and one thing that you bring up in the video a bunch that we haven't mentioned yet, the difference between, let's say, the Michael Jordan McDonald's ads or any of the ad campaigns, again, behind me about driving a bigger car or drinking vermouth or whatever, all of those, at least probably post maybe 1960s or 70s, have some element of disclosure. And that's one of the big differences between what we're seeing in the UGC world right now and those classic examples of advertising being sort of bs but still above the line is that there's no mechanism for saying like, hey, this is a paid advertisement. So maybe speak to that. Like, what, what do you think that would well, look like? Yeah, like, like the reality is that there, there's a there's laws that govern this, right? Like, so we can discuss mm -hmm. it philosophically, but there's a legal matter here. So the FTC, like the rule says this, it says under the law, claims an advertisement must be truthful, cannot be deceptive or unfair and must be evidence based, right? So there's actually a really high bar here for what you can mm -hmm. and can't do. And I promise you, under any scrutiny, 90% of the stuff in our industry will not hold up to that standard. It just hasn't been big enough for the FTC to, to matter. Like going back to this idea of like it being truthful or evidence-based, like 
this idea, I think we fail miserably in most cases. And so I think there's a real legal question here that if there was a group that wanted to put together a class action lawsuit against whoever, like it's it's there for some hungry law firm to go after it. Now, I'm not advocating for that because that's a, its own set of predatory behaviors. But there's a real question about whether we are attempting to sort of deceive the world into thinking we have lots of happy customers when maybe we don't. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that's, that's kind of like the other, the other place we could take this as we sort of spiral into the philosophical wormhole here, which is, so in each one of the cases, the, the five levels of the bullshit meter, let's say, an argument can be made yes. and probably is often made that the actual content of the thing being say, said is evidence-based or is evidence-based enough to, let's say, pass the, pass the test, the FTC test or yes. whatever, which is to say that like, maybe I say this is a great way to shave your face and it doesn't leave razor burn or something like that. And an AI is reading that to me on a script. And what we're deceiving people about is, let's say, who the person is, like this is a real customer, but the actual claim is perhaps true. Maybe you have a great product that does that, but, and here's the effectiveness conversation comes into play, getting people, getting customer generated content, let's say, takes time getting paid influencers, the other sort of levels of this tier or the other tiers of the meter take time and money. Just generating, let's say, just generating AI content is free and easy. Yeah. So why not do something free and easy if the content is itself actually true? Well, that sounds like, Richard, you've got your own line. And I think that that's, that's, <laughs> that's part of the opportunity sure. here. And I, what I'll say is that I think what you're describing is exactly what's driving this is that the decision-making framework for most brands is not doesn't begin with ethics. It begins with viability yeah. and survival, totally. right? It begins with necessity. And I think in many cases, brands are dying for great content. Content is expensive to produce. UGC has provided an affordable medium that happens to also be often effective. And so that is actually the motivating premise here is it's cheap, effective content that I can get access to that may help me survive as a business. And so ethics be damned, I need that ROAS. And so I think that that's in many cases where people exist. There's also a lot of brands where you won't see that kind of content because mm -hmm. one, they may not need it. They may have their own sense of it, but otherwise it wouldn't actually align with who they're attempting to position themselves in the world to be. Right. So actually then let's talk about a little bit about the, let's talk about the effectiveness of UGC because I think that's, we've alluded to that a number of times, but we haven't really dug into it. Yeah. And there's this idea that UGC is, the best bang for your buck that you can get out of an ad. Yeah. And so in a sense, you can make the argument that this sort of like the bullshit meter conversation is a little bit of a privileged one. If you have the ability to make this sort of have these sort of ethical considerations without losing your business or <laughs> missing a revenue target to the extent that you get fired sure. or whatever the case might sure. be for the people who are listening right now. So speak to that a little bit, because like if, hey, you, bullshit UGC doesn't really work long-term and it's a bad idea. Well, that's one thing. But what if it's actually effective? Then what's the argument you make there? Well, the, the argument I would that? make is imagine this brand X that would say this to me, telling me it's a privileged conversation. Imagine you come to hire CTC and I say to you, hey, great. And as part of the sale process, you're like, can I speak with three customers? And I'm like, absolutely. I think that's a fair request. And I send you to AI-generated robot Rick. <laughs> who proceeds to, on the phone call, lie to you in a just totally made-up thing about how amazing CTC is, and you decide to commit to a contract with me and pay me lots and lots of money. How do you feel on the other side of that exchange? 
And so the question is like, what are you actually building if you're building customers that are deceived into the use of your product? Now, if I do an amazing job for you, maybe it doesn't matter. Like maybe at the end of the day, I've won and you never find out and it's a, it's a, it all works out in the end. That's certainly possible. But I think that there's, and this is what ethics is. I think ethics is, is a subjective determination in the, uh, by, that determines the parameters under which you're willing to win the game is a sim simple sort of boiled down of ethics. It's like, what line are you willing and are you not willing to cross in the name of winning, profit, victory, survival, growth, et cetera? And everybody gets to sort of determine that for themselves. And so I understand, I, I understand the very human motivation for the action, but I don't actually think it serves you. Know, I think it's a shortcut to actually maybe solving the bigger problem that would actually have a better business impact. And there's that setting that aside, there's the whole sort of Seth Godin purple cow principle, which is this idea that like the value of the ad form in, in itself is on a permanent deterior, deteriorating value curve, totally. which is, yeah. which is that like from the moment it was first introduced was the most valuable it was ever going to be. And it's only going to move backwards as it becomes more proliferated. So the more it's used, the less impactful it becomes. The less novel it is, the less likely it is to cut through the noise in the feed, the less differentiated your brand becomes, the less leverage you get and all those things. And so the question is like, which slope do you want to jump onto? The one that's like on a deteriorating down to zero value as it proliferates to infinity? Or do you want to go out and seek some novel outcome that will produce novel returns? Mm -hmm. So so the other, the other kind of piece of this here is the idea that, well, it's kind of like it's, people make this argument about climate change sometimes. If we proactively address climate change and it turns out that it was fake, the end result will, will have an awesome world where everything is more sustainable and better and more beautiful and the environment will be healthier or whatever, right? If you spend your time on making the best possible product that you can make, if you move your focus away from, let's say, generating UGC and towards creating things that are going to have real great long-term impact, then if after all, maybe UGC would have been really effective for you, but what you're left with is a better business, a better product, and maybe better ways of thinking about how to communicate it and more of that novelty. So yeah, um, there's a yeah. great, there's a, there's a, there's an awesome YouTube video from Helena Hambrecht, who was the founder of house. Okay. The, the drink company. And let's set aside the fact that that business ended in not the ideal way. Cause there's lots of complexities around distribution and capitalization as it relates to beverage. I think Helena is a, a brilliant brand thinker. Okay. And in this video where if you look up Helena Hambrecht brand talk or something like that, you'll find it. Maybe we'll put it in the show notes, but um, she talks about how she thought a lot about designing the brand for word of mouth. What does that mean? How do you design it? She said that we wanted house to be not drunk alone. We wanted it to be the, the beverage of the dinner party. And so what we did is we did two things. One, it's a stark white bottle that stands out amidst any background. So they designed the product so that it would be visually compelling in any setting. Two, we wanted it to be served with multiple people in attendance such that the person hosting the event would likely have to explain what it was. And so they, you would never see product photography of one person drinking the product. They wouldn't shoot it because that's not what they wanted the experience to be. They wanted it to be something that would be passed around amongst a group of friends from like the cool person throwing the house parties out to all of their friends because they knew they were the influencer. And if they could get them to talk about it in their space, that would actually influence the brand and help it grow. And to me, that's where I go, okay, now we're actually thinking about how product informs advertising, informs messaging, informs production, 
to actually create a mechanism, that's a lot closer to me to making people think that you should be eat bacon and eggs for breakfast than it is lying and saying everybody eats bacon and eggs for breakfast. And here's 10 fake people pretending they eat bacon and eggs for breakfast, you know, and going from there. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, okay, cool. I, is there anything else you want to hit on this? What are some other good examples? Because I think you have a few of these of things that are entirely marketing creations that people <laughs> wouldn't realize. So I know yeah, one, totally. I'll, I'll, I'll do one more. I know toothpaste, right? Is it sort of a classic one mm -hmm. that like the idea that you have bad breath and need minty fresh breath is a total marketing creation, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So, so a list of, of American cultural norms that are essentially creations of advertising. Yes. Like, as you mentioned, yes, the idea that you need toothpaste to brush your teeth. That's one thing that sort of started out as BS. And then sort of as they developed the product into something that was actually effective. Now it's like, that's kind of okay. Uh, the other thing is like the idea that like you should eat cornflakes and cereal for breakfast. This is a, essentially a marketing ploy. Similarly with the idea that um, this is a, a really famous one because it's more recent, which is the idea that like milk is good for your bones and milk. kids should drink milk. Yeah, that's. That's just advertising. There's not a scientific basis to that at all. Yep. There's a couple of other good ones. Another uh, one isn't isn't there one about the color ahead. green? Like, what's the story? Oh with, yeah, that was it's it's <laughs> that like was a cigarette too. company. What tell that one? Yeah. So so this is an interesting example of this is not something that really persists anymore. But originally, uh, Lucky Strike. This this is this is the perfect example of reversing exactly what we think you shouldn't do. Right. Which is to say, Lucky Strike was released a bunch of packs of cigarettes that were green. There was some sort of mishap where the cigarettes were all printed green and Lucky Strike cigarettes generally are in like a white package. And so of course, everybody at Lucky Strike was kind of freaking out. And there was maybe a perception too, and, and maybe an actual drop off in sales that happened because people didn't recognize what the product was. They weren't sure why it had changed, all that kind of thing. So they hired a PR firm or an advertising firm at the time, this is in the 1920s maybe, that created a series of events and one particular one called the Green Ball. And what they did with the Green Ball, they took all of Manhattan's socialites, the wealthiest, the elite, the cream of the crop, and they invited them all to a ball and everybody had to wear green. And so what happens is every famous person in the United States came to this event wearing green. All the women were dressed in green. All the men had some sort of green accoutrement or whatever. And all of a sudden green became very cool and Lucky Strike's green pack cigarettes started flying off of the shelves. That's right. So instead of fixing the product problem, which in this case isn't necessarily a product problem per se, but instead of fixing the product problem, they created an advertising world around the product to, to move that, which is, you know, it's a lot of effort to move some Lucky Strike cigarettes. But it, but but it actually influences things yeah. at a level that's very different than like the CTR on an ad. And this is to me like yeah, much sure. more interesting. So like, I'll give you an example. There's, there's a brand that you guys will hear me talk a lot about because I, I, maybe for those of you that, hang out with me, but because I think it's one of the most incredible e-commerce businesses in the world. And, and it's a company called Heart and Soil. Okay. And mm -hmm. one of the things that they care about and talk about is that one of the metrics that they actually measure is the relationship with carnivore diet versus keto diet. Now hmm. their products aren't specifically meat products, like our meat. Uh, it's not like part of the carnivore diet by default, but cultural movement towards that idea is closely related to their products. Whereas keto is about fat-based products. It's just like a different diet. And so there's this, the more that one, the cultural trend moves towards that, the better it is for them. And so they actually are interested in influencing culture to, in this direction such that their products become part of that norm, right? And so those mm -hmm. kinds of things of thinking about like, and this is why 
when I when I talk about the biggest influences on your ad account being the marketing calendar or culture broadly, it's just so obvious. Like I think about the outdoor industry and how much when people were locked in their houses, it was the most obvious way to make people or when you couldn't go anywhere. And so people could only go outside distance from each other. All of a sudden, all these outdoor activities exploded. Now, I'm not saying go cause a global pandemic to sell more stand up <laughs> paddle boards, but you get the idea of how you like golf is a great example right now. Golf, if you're a golf brand, you are benefiting from the release of Netflix full swing golf documentary in a way that you're reaping the benefit of a cultural narrative that had nothing to do with your ad content. And mm -hmm. that is actually the most powerful thing that could happen is that culture, the zeitgeist could move towards you. And I think a lot of marketers back in the day that they didn't have the CTR lever. They didn't have the, this lever. They had to move culture towards a thing in a way to actually impact it. And so the wins were bigger. They were probably harder to come by, but when you did it, you could really, really move things. Yeah. Right. And that's of course where like ethical conversations can become massive because you know, there's like, Hey, smoking is fine for you <laughs> is like an example of the way the culture can be moved in the wrong direction That's right. in order to move product. But I think maybe to your point about heart and soil and how it taps into an existing cultural movement, I think that's something that's really, really interesting. The example that came to mind for me, we've had a conversation a, a while ago about this, but I'm obsessed with chess right now yep. as yes. coincidentally are many, many millions of other people that's over the right. last two, three months. And that's all because the Queen's Gambit came out in 2020 and chess.com, which is, you know, the most used chess site or whatever, had like 500,000 people before that. After it came out, they had like 5 million. At this point, they have about 10 to 15 million, somewhere in that, <laughs> that user range. And it's just because something happened that they weren't expecting that they were actually really, really good at hooking into and turning themselves into the hub of chess on the internet. That's right. And, they, and that's the kind of thing that you have to be aware of. Exactly. And then and so suddenly what they and the whole downstream effect of that of like all of the TikTok clips that come out of chess.com and then the Magnus Carlsen scandal of is somebody cheating? Like it all develops into this cultural wave where if you're selling chess boards, like nothing you could do on an ad basis could mimic that industry movement towards your thing, you know? And so I think there's this, there's always this question of like, yeah, what? what should we be spending our energy to try and accomplish in order to make a business work? And is it paying actors to show up to a studio to say a fake thing? You know, it's just, it feels yeah. like the shallowest version of us that, that uh, we could aspire to more maybe, I guess is my hope. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Well, that'll do it for us. You know, everybody, if you have thoughts about what your ethical line is, how you think about this, we would love to hear them. You can always tweet at us or email podcast at commonthreadco.com to sort of sound off about this issue. We'll link the video in the show notes as well so you can interact with it there. Taylor, anything else you want to plug? No, that's it. What's your ethical right. line? Actually, I'd love to, no, I don't mean you, Richard. Sure. I mean, leave it in the comments <laughs> if you're on YouTube or anywhere else, or I'm sure I'll put this out on Twitter. Where's your line? Am I off? Am I too stringent? Am I some sort of uh, old left behind Luddite here that needs to get with the times of that AI is going to be everything and indistinguishable and I just need to accept it. Like, what do you think? Where's the line? Cool. All right. Take care, everyone.